it's nice to um, be back after being away for two weeks. I don't know what happened in the two weeks. Somehow this side offended this side, or vice versa. <laughs> so whatever has happened, we just get on with getting, forgetting each other, moving on. Um, now, I want to start with, I'm really, actually, this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. And as I was uh, telling everybody and Sam this morning, uh, I'm glad that Sam chose to not preach from Matthew, because that meant I could preach from this text today. I was really looking forward to it. So I will definitely not do it justice, but even someone preaching it badly is really good news. So I'm going to take good stuff for you. Um, first thing to think about, <clears throat> the apple of my eye. Have you heard that, that expression before? Oh, she's the apple of my eye. He's the apple of my eye. That, um, sorry, I'll put that over here. The, um, the idea of that comes from, and you can kind of see it here if you look closely to her eye here, is that uh, someone is so close, you can see your own image reflected in their pupil. It's like uncomfortably close. When we say that, we mean someone's like really cherished, someone who's, who's really, who you love a lot, who you desire a lot. An example of this working out in our lives, it, it, one example is the parent-child relationship. Every parent wants their child to know that their child is the apple of their eye. Every parent would love that, every loving parent. Um, every parent wants their child to know how much they mean to them, even when they keep you up at night. You still love that kid. The parental relationship is maybe one of the most important human connections that we will ever have. It's really it's part of our identity. It's part of how we define ourselves. Now, if we don't feel loved, if we don't feel accepted, if we don't kind of feel enjoyed by our parents, we will shop that need around everywhere else. We'll work really hard to achieve it. And we try and become people who will get that love from wherever we've deemed it better. And in and, and doing that, we can become the good child. Parts of us become the good child. Doing good things to get the, the delight of our parents or whatever else has kind of been the substitute for them. And we work really hard to be seen as worthy. And we hold it up for everyone to see, look, I'm, I'm good. If I'm good, won't people enjoy me? And we also can become the bad child. We realize that uh, getting the parents' delight, is not, like, that's impossible. And it's just not even on their terms. It's just, so we reject that and we find love on our own terms. I do what I want when I want. The good child in us wants to perform for love, to achieve something to earn our worth. And God may not be impressed with how I am now, but if I do this, this, and this, maybe he'll actually love me. Maybe if I keep at this thing long enough, he'll, he'll enjoy me. And it looks like being good on the outside. Good, good children come to church. Good children help out in social work. Good children have good values. Good children lead, lead missional communities. They say the right things at the right times. But really, I can point to manipulation on the inside of our I do this, so God, you must love me. There's a demand there. Now, the bad child in us wants to forget this whole business and just find something else. Like, I'm just going to find something that makes me feel good. We realize how hard or maybe even how impossible it is for our father to be impressed with us. And maybe he's not even there at all. And if he is, maybe he doesn't even really care. So we try and achieve something else that would tell us how delighted, whatever that thing is, in us. It looks like rebellion on the outside. So bad children party on the weekends. They don't worry about how many partners they sleep with. They surely wouldn't be interested in coming to church. But it all points to a yearning for the love of God. And of course, in us, we're not either one or the other. There's both of those kind of warring it out within us. And deeper than our earthly parents, how we view our acceptance with God tells us who we are. And if our earthly parents matter, I think all of us would say, yes, that's true. Surely our heavenly parent matters more. And because we don't truly believe that God actually delights in us. I'm going to say that for everybody. It's probably true for all of us. Because of that, we're uncomfortable with our identity. We're uncomfortable with our acceptance. And we try and find that in other places. To be the apple of someone else's eye or something else's eye. And we shop that idea 
of being delighted in. We shop that around, the good child and the bad child, in search of an identity that will give us the love we want, the love that we really need, so we can feel like we're a person. Because when you feel loved, you feel like you're real. You feel like you're a human being, a real, live human being. But the good news is that this delight, this personhood, isn't something to achieve, thankfully. It's something we get. It's something that we receive. And through Jesus, we are rescued from those childish ways, and we are free to live in the delight of our Father. That's what the story is all about today. God delights in you. Like if, if you were like, what was the sermon about? It was about God delighting in you. If you don't know, if you don't get anything else to, to come back with that idea of God actually delights in you, to live knowing that you're a delight to the Father, that changes how we go about all the things that we go about. That changes everything. And that's what the story of Jesus' baptism is all about. And here's where we're going to go, basically in a sentence, and we'll follow this sentence as we go. Because the Father loves the Son and identifies with us, the Father delights in us. So we're going to just look at those phrases as we go throughout. Because the Father loves the Son and the Son identifies with us, the Father delights in us. Now you might say, like, how in the world does Jesus' baptism tell us that? Well, that's what we're going to learn about today. Why is this in our Bibles? Let's look at that first phrase. Because the Father loves the Son. Now, before Jesus starts his ministry, before he performs any miracles, before he does anything amazingly cool that we're all like, oh my gosh, how can someone ever do that? Before he preaches any sermons, before he suffers any beatings, the Father is pleased with him, and not just kind of normal pleased, but well pleased. Like a good takeaway. It's not just good, it's well good. It's, who knew the Father was northern? And being well pleased means to take pleasure or delight in. That's like worthy of choosing, worthy of approval. It doesn't just happen to do it. He's going out, and he's very happy about what's going on here. That's where the saying of the apple of my eye comes in. God is saying, like, that's my boy. I'm excited about him. So the father delights in the son. He says, the son in whom I love. Now, some other translations, I think the ESV might even say, it used my beloved son in there. Uh, that's not a word we would use in our everyday kind of speech, which is why the NIV changes to, to the son whom I love. But that word beloved, that word whom I love, uh, I mean, beloved can sound kind of churchy, but uh, let's not miss maybe what, what that might be about. Beloved is, an, is another way of saying like one who is in a very special relationship with another. You might say that about your spouse like on a wedding day. One who is dearly loved, prized, valued. And, and uh, maybe the marriage relationship kind of scrapes the surface of what might be going on there. But in all of this, there is no way, and I'll attempt to do it, but there's no way to overstate the love that the Father has for the Son. You can never say enough about it. You can never overstate it. You can never be hyperbole. It's impossible. We don't, in fact, all the words that we have are quite limiting uh, as far as having being able to describe that great love that the Father has for the Son. Even as an American, I can't hype it up enough. I'm going to try. As you know, I'm all kind of relaxed up here, but we'll try, we'll see. I'm not sure, actually, we as finite beings can ever really understand the infinite depths that the Father has for the Son. When we get those glimpses, and what they, even those glimpses are overwhelming. And this is not just a Father-Son situation either. This is a Trinitarian identification. So we have the Son who's baptized, the Father speaks, and we have the Holy Spirit who's resting. The Holy Spirit rests. Now, this text was not written to prove the existence of the Trinity, this is just an eyewitness account of what has happened, and what we find is reality is that God is Trinity. It's just kind of saying what is going on here. People saw and heard this. So the Trinitarian love here, the Father is pleased, we already covered some of that, and the Spirit here rests. 
And resting is a form of approval. It's a form of commissioning. The descent of the Spirit of God, where it says, like, kind of like a dove. I was just like, how else can I explain it except like a dove? Um, it's not that the Spirit of God became a dove. It was just kind of like a way to explain what's going on there. The descent of the Spirit of God is a clear reference to Isaiah. Now, if you can, like, rewind all the way back when we went through the Isaiah series, uh, there's a couple verses here that kind of get to that, what the Spirit of God resting means. And one comes from chapter 42. And this is, we, we did go through this when we went through our Isaiah series. Here's my servant. This is talking about the Messiah. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So the spirit is going to rest on someone. For what reason? To give justice to the nations. And in Isaiah 11.2 um, says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, talking about the Messiah. So there's something about what, uh, what is going on here. The picture that we have here is uh, God trying to say in the most kind of theological like performance art kind of way, this is the Messiah. The Spirit of God is resting on him. And that's not to say that Jesus up until now was not involved with the Spirit, because Matthew himself talks about Jesus' birth as being attributed to the Holy Spirit. But now as the Spirit comes to rest on him, it's a special kind of commissioning. Jesus is now in front of everybody, publicly, visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake this kind of messianic mission of justice to the nations, of bringing people out of darkness into the light. It's kind of like a coronation service. So King Charles, he's the king, but there will be a coronation service. It's not like he wasn't king before it, but the coronation service makes it very public for everybody. This is the king. And we're presented with the same kind of event here, only anointing Jesus as king. So all the people who saw that with their own eyeballs then, which must have been insane, how would you even like process what went on there? They were all eyewitnesses to Jesus, Jesus being kind of dubbed as king. And all of us now is reading this were secondary witnesses of that actually happening. And to maybe begin to get the idea of how much the Father loves the Son, the son uh, as a scale that we kind of can't really understand, Here, um, just to kind of give some universe numbers, and universe numbers always blow my mind, and I love talking about them, because they're always numbers that we don't really understand. Like, what's even a billion? Like, I don't even, no one really knows what a billion is, but the, I mean, a universe, like a billion is a very small amount. Okay, the length... Uh, the last time I've researched this, the length of the diameter of the observable universe is 93 billion light years. First of all, 93 billion is a huge number. A light year is the amount of time it takes light to travel in a year. That's a long distance. I don't know how long it is off the top of my head. Probably someone does. But I think what we, even just the length of the universe, we have no idea what that means. So if you were to take your car and drive it from one end of the universe to the other, going like, 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, cluttering around. You know how long it would take you to go from one side of the observable universe to the other? 10,000 billion, billion years. There's not even a number for that. 10,000 billion, billion. Like, they, I looked it up. I was like, sure, there must be, like, some kind of number. And there was kind of a number, but it was, like, unpronounceable for me. Um, but it's just, it's a, it's a scale beyond, like, our brains can fathom. It's just out of, I mean, I was going to say out of this world. I guess it's close. <laughs> That was not meant to be a pun. And now that I'm talking about it, not meaning to burn that, maybe you do put that as manuscript. Now, the, um, but if that's just what the Father has created, surely his love is larger than that. That's just like a view of someone to limit your love by your career. You're like, oh, of course I have more love than what the span of my career. The same kind of thing for God. This is just one small thing he's created. The Father's love is bigger than 10,000 billion billions for the Son. We cannot fathom it. All the deep and significant loves that we have on earth for our friends, for a partner, for our children, combine all those together, and that's the beginning itch, slight 
1% of a 1% of a 1% of how much the Father loves the Son. So the Father loves the Son, and the Son is, as we've seen here, more than acceptable in the sight. Before the Son does anything, He's enjoyed by the Father. Jesus, being fully accepted in the Trinity's love, is identified within the Trinity as their own. The Father speaks, the Spirit rests, and the pinnacle of this event is the Father's delight in the Son. Now you might be like, cool, God loves, like, of course God loves God. The Father loves the Son. Like, why does that matter? Well, we are getting there. The why that matters comes in with how the Son identifies with us. The reason this is a big deal is because ultimately where we're getting, spoiler, is we get to be included in that same kind of inner Trinitarian love that the Father has for the Son. And the way that happens is that the Son has to identify with us. In this story, we see it through baptism. What a weird thing for Jesus to come to John and ask to be baptized. John said his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, Jesus is perfect. He came in this world sinless. He has never sinned himself. He does not need a baptism of repentance. And that's why John's like, hang on, this is like sacrilegious. Me baptizing you? That's how much the Son identifies with us. When we really get it, it feels sacrilegious. Like, there's no way God can be that close to us. The first thing that Jesus does for the human race is to go down with it into deep waters of, of repentance that he never needed. And that takes us off guard. And it ought to. Because there is no forgiveness that he seeks. He's not even seeking forgiveness. He doesn't need to seek it because he's perfect. And yet still he chooses to identify with those he came to save through being baptized by one of his own creation. Wow, what a humble one of his own creation. And Jesus kind of gives a reason why. He's, he's telling John, when John's like, hang on, you need to baptize me. Jesus is like, no, this is proper. It's, and what Jesus says is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It's not just a righteous thing to do, but it fulfills all righteousness. Now, that it, as we've already kind of looked through in Matthew, like, Matthew likes to talk about fulfillment often. And so he's not just using that word kind of out of nowhere. He's using that word very um, specifically to fulfill righteousness. What does it mean to fulfill righteousness? When you think about that, like, first, even what kind of concept does that mean to, like, make righteousness perfect, to make it, to, to live in a fulfilled righteousness? Well, one aspect of Jesus being baptized at the beginning of his ministry is this. What he's doing is he's setting wrong things right. And that's what righteousness is, is setting wrong things right. And Jesus, by emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, Christ is now identifying with the human race, saying, I am one of you. He's God, yes, but he's also man. And here's the public declaration of both in a very short amount of time. The Trinity affirms his deity, his baptism affirms his humanity. Though he is God, he's also one of us. The way that theologians have been able to like try and wrap our heads around this kind of unwrappable thing is saying that Jesus has is one person that has two natures. He has a human nature and he has a, a, a God nature. And righteousness, according to the Bible, is responding to injustice by setting wrong things right. So if that's what Christ is doing, setting wrong things right, the way that Christ is fulfilling this righteousness then first starts with identifying with us. And what this is, is an answer to Isaiah's cry in the Old Testament for God's righteousness to be revealed. Being confronted with injustice and brokenness everywhere, I'm sure none of us can think of that. None of us can identify with that. Broken political systems, now nah, we're all right. We're doing fine, right? But Isaiah cried out for righteousness. And this is the message translation, uh, which I think kind of fits really well with God the Father's word here. Uh, it says, look down from heaven. This is, this is, this is how I'm praying, by the way. It's Isaiah talking to the Father. I'm loving the screams coming from the other room right now. They're even having a lot of fun or something horrible is going on. Let's not worry about it. Um, 
So this is Isaiah talking to God, saying, look down from heaven, look at us. Look out of the window of your holy and magnificent house. Whatever happened to your passion, your famous acts, uh, your famous mighty acts, your heartfelt pity, your compassion, why are you holding back, God? This is how you pray to God that you actually believe in. And then later on, uh, Isaiah, kind of like in a moment of uh, exclamation, it's like, oh, that you would rip open the heavens and descend. You would make the mountains shudder at your presence. And Christ coming down out of earth, or coming down out of heaven to earth, now up out of the water. God is ripping open the heavens, and he's saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. God is setting wrong things right, specifically ours. And all righteousness is being fulfilled, is in the process of being fulfilled at this moment. I mean, how many of us have wanted to see the brokenness of this world made right? Like the broken parts of ourselves. Like we all want that. But when I think about that, I still think, yeah, but how? Like how though? Because we don't really get the answer here. And the answer that actually isn't in this story of how Jesus does this. The answer is found in the story later on in Matthew where uh, something different than baptism, because the fulcrum of Christ's identification with us isn't baptism in itself, it's kind of what began that identification. If we fast forward a bit, that's the story of the cross, where the Son took our wrongdoing upon himself and died for them. Without that act, we could be baptized over and over and over again, say we're sorry over and over and over again, but nothing would really change. So God is love, and also God has wrath towards us without the cross. He's full of wrath. That's because instead of obeying him, we decide to do our own thing on our own terms over and over and over again. He's very patient with us. And he's created us, we decide to reject him. And everything wrong that we've done does have to be dealt with. And many of us, probably all of us, are kind of wondering, like, why would God be angry at me? Like, I'm, I'm relatively good. I'm not, like, going out and murdering loads of people. Like, the Bible says, though, that regardless of the things that we do, if we aren't worshiping God... That's like committing treason. It could be a very good thing on the outside, but it could be a very bad thing on the outside. But regardless, in our hearts, it's like committing treason. It's like a spy that can look perfectly good on the outside, but once you see the inner workings, you see there's actually like a deep betrayal going on. And no country treats treason with neutrality, nor should they. And our cosmic treason has to be dealt with because God is full of justice as much as he's full of love. And we actually all want a just God, surely. If we found out there was a criminal, a judge over a criminal court that never sentenced anyone, we'd be like, well, that's unjust. That's not right. People want to get what they deserve. When we see wrong in this world, we want someone to pay. When world leaders take advantage of their power and, and use up other people they're supposed to be leading for themselves, that gets us riled up, as it should. But let's not be hypocrites when it comes to justice. We should sit under the same kind of a level that we expect other people to sit under. Because we, all of us, were treasonous. If you've ever worshipped someone else or something else other than God, and you have, we all have, I mean, it's just like a spy who might have said, oh, I committed treason. It was, like, it was some light treason. Like, justice means a right punishment. And so that brings us to these two things. One, we rightly deserve God's wrath. Two, we cannot deal with this by ourselves. We do rightly deserve it. If we're, if we're kind of honest with us for a second, we really just do deserve it. And we can't deal with it by ourselves because we're not God. We're only humans. But with Jesus, especially here, there's a third thing. We don't need to deal with this by ourselves. God himself took it on through Jesus. God the Father had a wrath. Only God the Son could satisfy. There was this cosmic level of treason that requires a cosmic level of punishment. 
So Jesus took himself and all that cosmic guilt, took it to the cross, and died. And along with that, I took our punishment with him. So Jesus willingly and lovingly took on what we deserved upon himself. He wasn't forced into it. That's why he came into this world. The Father wasn't forced to love us because of that. He, he delighted to be able to love us. And they, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit set this plan in motion before the world was even created so that we would be able to see how good he is. And now, for those who are in Christ, God moves from wrath. not, not doesn't leave us like a neutral place, but, um, but to delight. That God himself delights in you. We can be the Father's joy. It's like, I mean, Colin is not obedient like every other kid. He's not 100% obedient, but he does actually love to see his parents be happy with him, just like any kid does. And that's what we get before we do anything. Baptism is the beginning of Jesus' identification with us. The cross is his culmination. And let me tell you, here's some of the blessings that we get by Christ identifying with us. In fact, if you ever read in the Bible, there's very two short words that kind of get to this whole big theological idea of Christ identifying with us. If you've ever read in Christ, that's what this is all about. So two words that mean so much are in Christ. So before we do anything, here's what we get. I mean, here's the very kind of brief things of some things that we get in Christ. We get every single spiritual blessing that has ever existed. We get that in Christ. Before you do anything, we have one who empathizes with us because he was tempted in all the ways that we have. And he never gave in, so he knows it worse than we do. We get Christ himself as our brother, not just our king, but our brother. Christ sings praises alongside us. When we were singing earlier, Christ was singing along with us. When we sing when we sing in a bit, Christ is joining our song. That sounds sacrilegious to say. Like, we should maybe be bigger or have a better sound or kind of, you know, I don't know, have better speaker. Like, is it really worth, and Jesus delights to do it. We're not twisting his arm to sing with us. He delights to do it. We get Christ as our friend, not just a brother, but a friend, someone who wants to be with you and wants to know you and wants you to know him. Through Christ, we are forgiven. The penalty of sin is done away with. We don't have that anymore. Not just the penalty, though, but the power in our everyday lives. Sin is done away with in Christ. And in Christ, we get a future hope, saved for us, that moths cannot eat and rust cannot destroy, no matter what the declining pound might have to say about it. That's what we get in Christ. I mean, we could look at triple these amount of things and spend more time on it. These are all things that you get before you do anything. You don't deserve any of this, and you're not giving it, you're not giving it as like something you've achieved. It is what you get to receive through God because of what Jesus has done. Before we make a mess of something, or before we do a half decent job, if you are in Christ, if you're a complete waste of space, what is like the most complete waste of space idea you can have in your head? Like, I'm on my couch binge watching Netflix, and not even like a good Netflix show that makes me think that something dumb. And I'm just like chewing crisps and like ice cream. I'm just like, I'm a complete waste of space. These things are still true for me in Christ before I do anything. And the Father still says to me, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. I love him. Of course, God's love is such that he doesn't keep us the same. But his love for you is not contingent on what you do. And how often do we get what we do with who we are reversed? We always think who we are is what we do but not in God's world. And for those whom Christ has died, those who are in him, those who he was baptized for, no matter what, God loves you and is delighted in you, no matter what you do. It's now who you are. You were something else before, now you are part of Jesus. God's love in your personhood is not something to achieve, but as a gift that you receive. And even as I say that, it's offensive to us. The good child parts of us, they will get offended, 
that we get offended with the fact that God delights in us outside of what we do because we've worked so hard to be noticed. Man, I lead that thing. I'm part of that serving team. I give my time. Why are other people doing that thing? I'm helping my neighbor. Nobody even knows I'm helping my neighbor. I, your service it cannot fulfill all righteousness. It, it can't. A good child balks at how inclusive God's love is. Now the bad child parts of us are uncomfortable because God says the only way we can get that love we really want is to be in Christ. But I don't want to be in Christ because that sounds really hard, and it is. And I really just kind of want to live life in my own terms, thanks very much. How dare you say I must find my delight in Him first? Can't I come to a church service and kind of live however I want? My partner's love fulfills all righteousness, or my 51% good life fulfills all righteousness. I'm good enough with that delight, right? See, the good child balks at how inclusive God's love is. The bad child balks at how exclusive God's love is. Both are true, a 100% true. And we're made of both, and our hearts are full of both. And so, though our, we like to hear that story, we are also kind of offended by the story at the same time. The radical love of the Father, though, is a freeing love. It frees us from the good and bad children inside, of, inside us and allows us to live as functional, loved, mature people. Christ identifies with us. We're in Him. The same love the Father has for the Son He has for us, and this can't help but change us. It can't help but change us. So because the Father loves the Son, and the Son identifies with us, the Father delights in us. Now because of what Christ did, the Father looks at us the same way He looks at the Son. His posture towards us is delight. He is thrilled. Not just when you're good, because you're never good enough. He is thrilled. I think I could say this every day to a Christian. I know I need to hear it probably every day, because we're so prone to forget of how much the Father enjoys who you are. I mean, these words towards Christ get to be words towards us. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's what we get. That, it, it, it's mind-boggling. The Father's delight, and that kind of delight, that kind of love actually really does free us to live in different ways. Because now we're freed to a living relationship. And this leads to being free to be able to be generous in ways that we wouldn't be able to be before. Only people who are truly loved and, and, and overwhelming love will get to have an extra love to give away. A spirit who rested upon Jesus now empowers us to live out that generosity. And the good and bad child use things or other people as a way to feel better about ourselves. Outwardly good things, outwardly bad things, relationships, all those things. Now, if these things don't make us feel better, we're just not going to do them. Or we'll do them kind of half-heartedly. We'll quit. Or if we do them, then we'll feel righteous and superior because we did something that we felt like was, was servant-hearted or something. But other than God himself, every other thing out there never comes through for us in the ways that we truly desire. That's how broken we are. But if you're in Christ, you're free from that kind of tyranny. You're free from having others to live under your tyranny. And now we can do good things in response to God's goodness. In a response to it, not as a way to get it, but it's in a response to it. We can have relationships that are giving and generous. Not as a way to selfishly get something out of it, but as an overflow of the love that we already have. So the good news is that we don't need to work for our own goodness. We don't. Everyone else, every other religious system, every other kind of like philosophical system leads to that. But we don't have to live that way. And what this does lead to is generosity. We're led out of manipulation into generosity. Just as the father didn't keep the love to himself, he could have. It would have been fine. He could have kept his love to himself, but he didn't do that. And Jesus didn't keep the Father's love to himself, which he could have done. It would have been fine, too. The love we receive is not meant to end with us. We're called to be beyond, uh, we're called beyond mere consumerism for that love to be projected outward. 
And the more that we realize how much we are loved, the more we realize how much we can't even hold on to it, even if we had every container in the world to hold it. And so we must give it away. This isn't something that we kind of muster up ourselves if we're super passionate, we're super zealous. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself, working through us. And when a child <clears throat> draws a picture for their parents, here's a photo I, I took of one of the things that Colin sent me, which um, I think, I don't know if he's an evil robot or not. Yeah. At first I was like, that's a chainsaw, but I don't think so. I think it's like an old school boombox, which is kind of cool. And then um, there's either a gift or a flag of some other country in his other hand. Um, now, when a child draws a picture for their parents, your love for them is not dependent on the quality of that picture. You're not like, well, you could have made that robot 3D. There's a very good 2D representation of your robot here, but boy, next time, can we maybe do a little bit better? No, you delight in the drawing because of you delight in the child. And if the child understands that kind of love, the drawing is created not in a way to get acceptance from their parent, but as an overflow of the love that they receive and that they have for them. And the Spirit who rested upon Jesus now resides in us, empowering us to live this way. And if we're really honest with ourselves, it would be really good if our lives looked as good as this drawing does. Because our lives are much more messy, much less composed than what this looks like. And yet the Father delights in that offering to Him. And when we are truly and deeply loved, when we receive that gift, this is the unmoving foundation that frees us to live in new ways. We don't have time to get into God. All these different kind of new ways and how it frees us to do it. And actually, what I did write previously is I had, um, I was like, oh, and this, for this application, for this point, we're going to talk about how this can free us to love people and serve people ways and that we couldn't do otherwise, which is all true. But I was like, you know, I wonder if that actually, if we were to focus on that, we kind of miss the point. The point that God actually delights in you. And to just stop there. Because I think that's really what this story teaches us. To put a full stop on the end of that. That God delights in you before you do anything. It might free us to be empathic. might free us to take risks. might free us to talk to people in ways we wouldn't talk them to. But before any of that, I don't think probably any of us would say, yeah, actually I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about how much the Father loves me. Probably none of us do. And if we did, probably our lives would be different. And whatever we get up to, our, that, those things would change for the better. And what it actually does for Jesus, and we're going to get to this in, in the, uh, the next um, messages, is it allows Jesus to have the foundation to go through difficult times, to go through difficult things, difficult temptations, because he knows he's loved by the Father. The barren wildernesses of this world that will tempt us to be the worst version of ourselves, we're going to be eaten alive if our foundation is not that God delights in us. And when we sing after this message, let's let the words come from a place of knowing that you are deeply loved by God himself. He cannot love you any more than he is right now. Sometimes we have this idea of like, oh, when I'm in heaven, God's going to love me a lot. Or when I do this thing or that thing, God's going to love Because his love is perfect, he cannot love you any more than he is right now. You have the maximum amount of God's love focused on you right now. I don't know how many, how many of us, myself included, really understand that or think to understand because for Christ, because the Father loves him more than 10,000 billion billions, and that's a big number, he was humbly submissive in his identification towards us. He was working in the joy of the Father's delight. This is the freedom he lives in, even now, always doing the Father's will. And for those in Christ, we have that same kind of love, as much above that Christ received as below here on earth. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives stirs us up 
stir up our spiritual imaginations, to stir up our, our spiritual memory, to, for us to remember as we go about our day. Remember how much the Father delights in you. When we wake up in the morning and we're like, oh, this is like, do I really have to go to church? Can I just like, go back to sleep? And then we hear the Spirit kind of reminding us, remember how much the Father delights in you. Now maybe you've been sitting here and listening to all this and you aren't a Christian. Maybe you're online, you haven't even you know, been able to, to take that difficult step of becoming in person yet. You aren't in Christ yet. Surely that sounds like something good, right? This, even just a brief time of how to talk about God's love, surely that sounds like a good thing. Anyone can get in on this unbridled, unmatched, deathless kind of love. It's absolutely worth all of our time trying to investigate more of this. Now, of course, I say that, though, right? I get paid by the church to do that. That's kind of like my job. I have, might have an ulterior motive. I have a salary kind of connected to this, right? But when you think about it, where's the risk, really? If you're not a Christian, like going to Alpha, going to a missional community, chatting with a friend, even kind of being here, it can feel like a risk, and I completely get that. But let me tell you, if all this stuff that we talked about is real, there is a much bigger risk, and that's missing out, regardless of if you believe the authenticity of the guy in front of you or not. Missing out on God's love, missing out on the gift of his personhood that he gives freely to everyone who wants it. And if you are a believer, I wonder where God's generous love is leading you. Because it is, it's leading you somewhere. Your own life is leading you places that you wouldn't go otherwise. Other people's lives. God's love never stops with us. So maybe what we could do is even as we sing and pray in a moment, ask the Holy Spirit what the next step might be for you in order to kind of live out of that love more. And as the Spirit rested on Jesus, He rests on us so that we can rest in Him. And to all of us who have that good and bad child battling out within all of us, to all parts of who we are, Christ says to everyone, come to me. Maybe you're really, really far away. Come to me. Maybe you're closer because you've had experience with this relationship. He still says, come to me, because we can all come in closer. All you who are working with religion to prove your goodness, how tired you must be. All you who serve in God's church, ironically, that you might be seen as worthy of the Father. Jesus says, come to me. All who are worn out trying to find elsewhere the delight that the Father already has waiting for you. Christ says, come to me. Only through a living relationship with Christ can we get in on this Father's love? Can we get the Spirit to rest upon us and be the apple of His eye? So in Him, we get the joy, we get the delight, we get the love we all crave, overflowing, more than 10,000 billion billions kind of love. And as we come and celebrate Jesus' work on the cross, we take our cosmic treason as punishment with Him, and He put it to death, through His death. And now for all who are in Christ, life remains, that that's what remains. His love remains in us, His delight remains in us. So if you are in Christ, you're welcome to join in with us for the Lord's Supper today. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Redeemer, though you should be a member of a church somewhere. And if you aren't in Christ, basically this practice of taking the bread and the cup, um, this is a practice saying that you are in Christ, so please don't lie to yourself and to God by joining in with it. Or 